Hello my friend, I'm Avi Caparas, host of The Decisive Life and founder of Ethics for Work and Life. And I'm honored to be your decision coach today to help you become a better person by making better decisions every day. I believe that we arrive at crossroads, we face dilemmas, we get at decision moments for a reason, and it is up to us to face them with serenity and courage and most of all, gratitude. I'm very happy right now that we have as our guest a good friend of mine, Dr. Maria Pidelis Manalo. And we can just call her Lisa. That's the shorter name. Hi, Avik. Hi, everyone. Glad to be here. Thank you very much for coming. And really, Siguro, you drove so fast from Medical City. Yes. <laughs> so we are in this topic of how to find meaning both in life and death. I suppose you have your own experience that, of course, at the threshold of death, people start finding meaning in their life or not finding meaning. So I would like to ask you my first question. I'm really interested. How did you ever get into palliative care? I've always been interested in cancer care. And when I was in residency training in family medicine in the University of Santo Tomas Hospital, I saw a lot of cancer patients having a lot of pain and suffering. And therefore, I was wondering if there's anything else we can do to relieve their suffering. As I practice some more, I realized that there's more to suffering than just physical suffering. In fact, what makes cancer patients or any terminally ill patients suffer is, of course, the fear of death and all its consequences on, on the patient and the family and the unknown, like, how will I die? Will I die in pain? Will my family members be around when it's time for me to go? How will my family cope when I'm no longer there? So all those existential questions that was causing a lot of psychological, emotional, and even spiritual distress on my patients was not relieved when I was still doing my residency training. So I felt compelled, you might say, to do something about it. And that's why I decided that maybe it would be good for me to pursue further training, fellowship training in hospice and palliative care. And the time that you started it, what year was that? Well, the palliative care fellowship program started in UPPGH way back 2002. But I actually started my own training in 2006. It's just one year of additional training for us in family medicine. And do you find that more doctors are familiar with palliative care? Like, I suppose they are the ones who refer to you, their patients? Maybe at this time, more doctors are familiar with it, especially with the universal health care law. Palliative care is very much part of it now. We want to bring palliative care to the community, to the farthest corner of the Philippines, and to the poorest of the poor, you might say, who may not be able to go to tertiary private hospitals for, for palliative care. But when we started, it was uh, going against the grain. People still have the misperception that to be referred to palliative care would mean that uh, they have given up on the patient. They're not anymore willing to fight their cancer. And therefore, it's like just waiting to die. And many people couldn't conceive of spending their last days and hours waiting for death. They would rather die fighting rather than to wait for the final end without doing something. So there's always that compelling urge to do something all the way to death. What does it mean when you say they would want to die fighting? 
what they wanted to go back home, do some work. No, when I mean die fighting, it's like if they're suffering from cancer, they would rather go through further surgeries. They would have chemotherapies, even if they have already undergone so many cycles of chemotherapy. They would want to go abroad, for example. Some would even, if they have the means, they would even ask for stem cell therapy, which is still not a standard of care for cancer. So they're willing to spend millions to try experimental treatments, no? just so they'll have more prolongation of life, you might say, and more time with their family, which is a legitimate desire. But obviously, there's no acceptance yet of the natural course of their illness. Really, I'm amazed. How can doctors find out, like, you have six months to live? Sorry for my ignorance. <laughs> really? Yes, 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 yes. Actually, we call that prognostication. Now, prognosis is how the disease will turn out, the outcome, no? will, whether the patient will get cured, will, uh, will have remission for a time, and then their cancer might occur, or they, they will progress, or they will die. We call that prognostication. That's a, that's a skill we learn when we, we are still in training. And of course, the more experience you have, the, the better you are at prognostication. But there are signs and symptoms of disease progression clinically, and even their labs point to it. And then there are signs and symptoms of inventing death, meaning I can tell, for example, if my patients have only a few hours to a few days to live. You can see it because they're already sleeping for a long period of time. They don't even want to eat. They cannot take their oral medications anymore. Their vital signs are becoming abnormal. Their urine output is lesser. So there are objective parameters with which we check to see if they're really reaching the end of life. So how precisely does palliative care help them and also their family once they near that their time for death? We always clarify that palliative care is not synonymous with end-of-life care. No, because when you talk about end-of-life, that's properly speaking hospice care. So by definition, hospice care is the care of somebody who has only six months to live. So it's very important to make that distinction because in other countries, hospice care is covered by Medicaid. No, so that means uh, the insurance of the government will pay for all the needs of the patient who has only six months to live. But in the Philippines, we don't have that kind of um, health care. No? But palliative care is appropriate for any patient suffering from a serious illness that is potentially life-threatening and for which they are having to undergo a lot of suffering. So in other words, we're not just dealing with stage for cancer patients. We have patients who are suffering from other end-stage diseases like end-stage liver, end-stage renal, those on dialysis, who, and they don't want to have a dialysis anymore. They're sick and tired of going to the hospital for dialysis, and they feel like they're not getting any better and their quality of life is very poor. Those with end-stage COPD, they're, they're always breathless. Those with end-stage heart diseases, again, they're always breathless and weak. Anybody who feels that their quality of life is very poor because of their illness is better referred to palliative care so that we can do something about those distressing symptoms. So sometimes the palliative care, sometimes people might think you're really just talking the person to prepare. Is that all? Like counseling? No, because when you talk about palliative care, it's an active holistic care 
to anybody with a potentially life-threatening illness. And that's why I was explaining that there's more to suffering than physical pain. Like when you're somebody's diagnosed with cancer, even if it's not yet stage four, you feel as if the, the, the rug is pulled under your feet and then you can't think. You don't know how to feel. It's like all your dreams are not anymore within your reach because you know that somehow I have less time to achieve my dreams. And then, of course, there's that financial worry that will I be able to afford anti-cancer treatments, for example. And that's a legitimate concern, especially in a third world country. And then existential distress, like what is the meaning of this? And in the first place, they ask, why me? They will always say, I've tried to be healthy, I eat well, I exercise, I don't have any vices, and my family history is very good, no one in the family has cancer, so how come I have cancer, and why am I dying? So that existential distress of why me, and what is the meaning of all this? So that's what we try to achieve, to help patients with and their families. Are you alone, like when you say that's what we try to achieve? Are you alone in that or you have a staff, you have several people? Well, most of it, it's really the doctors who address all these physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, at least in the Philippine setting. In other countries, they do have staff. For example, the counseling part is actually not handled by the doctor. It's handled by a psychologist who are very trained in counseling and even cognitive behavioral therapy to help address their distressing symptoms. And even the social worker is very actively managing the um, psychosocial aspect of the illness, even the looking for financial resources for the patient to tap, to, to afford anti-cancer treatment, for example. But in the Philippine setting, it's more of like uh, it's a one-man's job to address all those needs of a terminally ill patient. So you have actually encountered doing the same, like counseling, being the psychologist. Yes, yes. We have a training, actually. We're trained to do counseling, except that if there are too many patients and all of them are waiting to be seen by you, even if you would like to spend longer time with them, then you'll have to somehow cut short the consult and leave it for later. There's always that opportunity to, to have a follow-through anyway, unless they're really dying when they're referred. Oh, yeah, because somehow when they're really dying, is it like it's just the family you have to talk to. Correct. And in fact, that's always been our um, heartache when patients are referred too late. For example, they're already intubated on mechanical ventilator in the ICU and they're already heavily sedated to make sure that they're comfortable. Then you might say, what else can I do for this particular patient? So in that sense, the focus of care will be towards the family, how they're also understanding what's happening with the patient, how they're coping. Yes, but we would like patients to be referred early because what we want is to improve their quality of life, that they are able to identify their bucket list and do something about it. I heard that sometimes the awareness that one is dying can actually make one really realize that there's so much work to do and I still can contribute. But at the same time, the other thing there is to say, I only have three months to live. What can I do? And just give up. Do you encounter people who are more positive and wanted to do more? Yes. Actually, I have two such patients admitted now. 
I was doing the rounds with my fellows and we were seeing how edifying it was to take care of these particular patients. One is a female who's only in her late 40s or early 50s. And then uh, she's terminally ill. She knows she has only a few more months to live. And I was asking her, what would you like to do with the last months of your life? So they have full acceptance of the terminality of their condition. And her to-do list is actually quite simple. She just wants to go to the beach. She just wants to go to Tagaytay. She was asking if if I will allow her to do that. And I said, of course, why not? You may be kind of weak, but you're not breathless. You can still walk with assistance. And uh, you have such a positive outlook that I think you're going to enjoy yourself going to the beach and going to Tagaytay. And I said, let's be Facebook friends. And you post a lot of pictures so that I'll see how much you're enjoying your trip to the beach and to Tagaytay. This particular lady is unmarried. And there are just two of them, a female sibling. So, and of course, it's the female sibling who's kind of brokenhearted about the impending death of her sister, her older sister. My other patient is also in his early 50s, a father of three teenage children, two of whom are still in college. The wife keeps telling me that they have been sweethearts since they were 15 years old. They've been married for 27 years and she's heartbroken at the thought of losing him. But the patient himself is so calm and cheerful about the whole thing. I hardly saw him wince except when he's actually suffering from physical pain. But the moment I managed to relieve his pain, he's back to use his usual positive self. And uh, he was the one who drafted his advanced directives, meaning he was the one who told his family that he doesn't want heroic aggressive measures to be done, no intubation, no ICU admission, no surgery, nothing. He just wants to spend his remaining days, two weeks with his family. When you said that the second one, the guy, decided not to have extraordinary measures, is that because of your own intervention or you already found him really with that kind of, I mean, some people are prepared to die? No. In the first place, the kind of cancer he has, he has a skin cancer. Can you imagine? Skin cancer is called a melanoma. And from the very beginning, the medical oncologist told him that nothing works for melanoma There's no effective chemotherapy. Radiotherapy has very minimal role. He already had surgery for for the initial lesions. And whatever targeted therapy might be there in the market, the price of that targeted therapy is so prohibitive, like $300,000 per month for life. He would rather spend his money on his children. So it was with a fully informed decision on his part that He'd rather allow the natural course of illness to happen. And he has always been prepared towards the eventuality of death from the first day I met him. Do you find that it's much more difficult to help people, really it's more heart-rending to help people who are dying but have many dependents that they're going to leave behind? I mean, you're talking about a single person and a married person with three children and a wife? Well, the challenges for these patients are different. Of course, if you're single and you have only your siblings or even your parents, sometimes if they're too too young, their parents are still alive, right? So the burden of care will fall on the parents and the siblings. No? Well, depending on how close they are to their parents and their siblings, then, then of course, it, it's heartbreaking for them. 
But it's different when they're married with children because they know, especially if it's the father, right? He's mainly the provider and he's hands-on with the care of his children. Then, of course, um, I, I never actually saw him worry about how his kids will turn out. Because the moment I met him and the wife and told him about the prognosis, I said, I want you to bring to me your three children next time for counseling. I want to talk to them individually and ask how they understand their father's illness and how they are coping or not able to cope and then what kind of help do they need from us. So today, when we know that their father is really deteriorating, I ask to talk to them again. And of course, they're all crying. But since their father has such a calm, joyful acceptance of his illness, you might say even if it's breaking their heart, the fact that they see their father with such an attitude towards death and dying. He asked to go to confession. He called for the priest himself. We have a chaplain in the hospital who's available for the sacraments for our patients. It's a free service of the chaplaincy office. So they know that their father is, is ready. So that gives them a lot of peace and serenity, even if they're actually crying. You encounter patients who are denying that they're going to die? Like, you really try to help them, give them all the facts of the case, of their case, but they're on denial. What do you do with them? Yes, I had a patient like that maybe just a month ago. And I was telling everyone how he made his family suffer and how he made the medical team suffer because we're a multidisciplinary team of doctors and all of us are saying the same thing that there's no way we'll be able to pull you out of this and that we were trying to help you prepare for the eventuality of death but he never accepted the fact that he was dying and when I would probe how come you'd rather not meet death head on he said because I cannot give up and his reasoning is that if God is not giving up on me then I cannot give up on myself either. And I was making him realize that, well, maybe you should not look on God as necessarily wanting you to live. I mean, because I haven't seen him pray actually, so how is he to know that what he's saying as God's will for him is more of what is his will for himself? That's why I find that people who have a very strong faith and a strong connection with the divine find death and dying a relatively acceptable reality in our life. So this particular patient, I felt like it was a sad death for him and the family is also, you know, because they saw the patient wanting to live and they were not able to, to give him that wish of, of continuing to live, right? So the family also is like sad about the whole thing. So he and his family never really reached acceptance. Do you have post-death care for the family who's left behind, who are still suffering? If they want. We always tell them that since they know where to find us, that we can actually offer them grief and bereavement. But in the Filipino culture, it's not common practice for them to... Isn't it anything psychological or even anything psychiatric, for example? It doesn't sit well on, on the Filipinos. No? Like They think like, no, I can handle this myself. And in all of these cases, can you conclude or is there a relationship between a person's deep value of life with the preparedness to die? Like a person who finds meaning in life will also find meaning in death? Definitely. I would say they're even directly proportional. 
for a person who's living life to the full, even if it's the same old routine day in and day out, but they feel fulfilled. And their dreams are not even like extraordinary. I mean, it's the ordinary dream, for example, of a housemaker, of a father of a simple family, you know, or of a student who just wants to finish college maybe, because I do have young patients you know, who don't manage to finish their studies. If their attitude towards life has always been gratitude, you know, I'm just glad that God gave me life to begin with, that I have my loving family supporting me, that I enjoyed my life all this time, even if there have been real challenges and difficulties. Then when they are diagnosed with a serious illness that is potentially life-threatening, that same attitude holds. But for people who has never ever found meaning, they don't know what to do with their life, it's as if life is passing them by, then when the reality of death hits them, even that, they don't know what to do with, with the whole idea of dying. They never really lived. I would say they were just simply existing and parang waiting for life to hand them something that they don't even know what. They just end their life and you might say there's no legacy to the people they care about and even to society to talk about among these people these kinds of patients. And does it apply also not only to the dying, but to the family when you see that each family member has more awareness of life's meaning, they're more prepared for their loved one to die? Yes. And the advantage is if the family members are also people with a purpose, then they are able to provide the necessary support for the sick person. You might say they, they, they bring up, for example, we're talking about the parents, they're being alive, and it's the children who are sick, terminally ill, then they have passed on that way of looking at life to the child who's now terminally ill. And therefore, you might say, with that, with that family background and even value system that they got from their parents, then that's their attitude towards their death. So we, in family medicine, we always say that certain illnesses are brought about by the family but at the same time, certain illnesses are relieved and uh, supported by their family. So it works both ways. No? So the positive effect and the negative effect of the family will be there when a patient gets sick. And do you find also some effects on doctors who probably didn't know about palliative care, but somehow in the process got to appreciate some more things? Well, when we first started palliative care, for example, in the hospital where I'm currently working, the attitude towards death and dying is one of doing everything possible to make a person live. They feel like uh, you're not a good doctor if you don't save lives. But the more they get exposed to the principles and concepts of palliative care, they have adopted a more realistic approach to life, to death and dying. And now they don't anymore feel so bad when we allow the natural course of illness to, to take place and for death to eventually happen on their patients. I would always say that as long as you are able to relieve the pain and suffering of your patients, you have provided very good care, medical care, and that makes you a good doctor. And in fact, it's the patients themselves who tell us what kind of care they want and what makes for a good death for them? You'll be very surprised. No, there was a study done by our friend, Dr. 
Dr. Gemma Balain at UPPGH among cancer patients who were terminally ill. So she interviewed the patients, the family, and the doctors about how they defined a good death. And the answers of the patients and the families are more or less the same, but the answers of the doctors are different. So for example, as far as the doctors are concerned, what they consider a good death for their patients would be everything medical. I have already done everything possible to prolong my patient's life. I have relieved them of their distressing symptoms. But the answer of the patient and the family is just one. A good death for them is to be able to find their peace with God, to make their peace with God. And the family members got that right. Yeah, that's all the dying patient wants to make their peace with God. So if the doctors didn't know that, then they would not even offer spiritual care. So, For example, one of the things that, that I find very fulfilling is that wherever we have started the palliative care education and, and training program in whatever hospitals we're working, even the medical students, then the residents and the fellows, it's almost like second nature to them that when they see that a patient might die anytime, they would already inform me that they have already called the chaplain. So before, I would always remind them, have you called the chaplain? Have you called the chaplain? I, I forgot, doc. And they would call the chaplain. But now at the level of the ER, we are already calling the chaplain and our chaplain is more than happy to accommodate the request of the patients for spiritual care. And it applies to all religions? Yes, definitely, because we do have some patients who are non-Catholics or some Catholics who have shifted religions. And I would ask them if, because I would explain that that even if they have chosen another religion, in reality, they've been baptized in the Catholic Church. And if they want, they can they can actually receive the sacraments. No, they, they can receive, but some of them may prefer to be seen by their pastors, and that's okay. We also have some patients who are Muslims, so they have their own rights that they observe. Then they say, okay, fine, you can also receive spiritual care from whoever you wish to get them. And in all of this, was there any time that you really thought suffering is too much? With all the patients that you have counseled, that you have taken care of, did you reach a point where you also complained that how come suffering is too much? There's so much pain that you witness. Mm -hmm. Not really. It's very clear to me that pain and suffering will always be part and parcel of a person's life. So you might say, I find it unrealistic for us not to have some form of pain and suffering at any point in our life. And since we know that if there's anything sure about life, it's the fact that we're going to die, then the dying process will bring some pain and suffering. So our role precisely is to somehow minimize the suffering so that they are able to function and to continue with their work or with their studies for as long as they could, to live life as normally as possible, you know, given the limitations of their illness. So you might say patients and families will com complain about too much suffering if they have not yet been referred to palliative care. But precisely that's our role. You might say, yeah, there's still some limitations to, to how much we can minimize their pain and suffering. But if the medicines will not be able to do that effectively enough, the accompanying psychosocial support and spiritual care takes care of the rest so that they are able to accept that it's not possible to bring down the pain score to zero, for example, but at least they will know how to make use of that pain 
to be a better person, you might say, and to actually be able to console their families, even if they themselves are sick. I'm curious, was there a point in time that while you are counseling family or even the dying person, did your emotions show? Did you show yourself crying also when the family is crying? The most maybe that happened to me would be to get a little teary-eyed, but not actually for my tears to fall or for me to sob. Because uh, depending on how long I have taken care of this patient and how much they have helped me to become a better person and a better doctor, then their own death touches me in a personal way. Now, it's not like, okay, another dead person. Okay, that's it. Move on to the next one. No. But you might say, I'm able to handle my emotions, not because I detach myself from them, but because in the end, I myself find meaning in my patient's pain and suffering. And I try to communicate my own understanding of their illness to them. That's where my being a firm believer in God and in my Catholic faith has helped me because I can only give what I myself have, right? So I'm familiar with the writings of John Paul II, for example, on the Christian meaning of human suffering, right? So so I also share how they can look at their illness from the point of view of uniting it with the suffering of our Lord. I have some colleagues who actually are kind of skeptical about that kind of approach. But as another colleague would say, nobody argues with success, right? So if I see my patient's own burden is lifted by the consideration of the supernatural aspect of their suffering, then that gives me a lot of peace and serenity. So more than just, you know, blocking off my emotion and making myself like a stoic, it's really the whole idea that in the end, they die happy and calm and, and at peace with God, which is what they have always wanted, right? So in the end, they got what they asked for. Yeah, in a sense, you have somehow, as I can see it, you have brought them. I mean, if you are in a train station, you have brought them to another journey. Yeah. Correct. Definitely. Even for the non-believers, we can just talk about train stations. <laughs> I mean, or for the Catholics, you have brought them to the other life prepared. But you have never been tested, really challenged among all the patients. The way that you look at life and death was never challenged at all with all of your patients. Like, is it really worthwhile, all of this that you're doing for them? You might say, I feel pretty passionate about my chosen field, meaning I always say it's a vocation in itself. Not everybody's cut out for palliative care. More than just the intellectual capacity to to know a lot about terminal illnesses, but the, the emotional makeup, the psychological makeup, and even the spiritual makeup, you know, for you to be able to handle death and dying day in and day out for the rest of your life, if that's your chosen field of specialization. So... I never questioned my own choice of specialization. I never questioned my own perception of life, death, and dying because each and every patient whom I have taken care of has enriched me. They have made me a better person. They have made me a better doctor. Even those who didn't have faith and who refused to accept death and dying and who somehow did not make their peace with God the way I would have wanted them to, even them helped me realize that in the end, we're really free. Free to choose whatever. And I would have wanted them to choose God 
especially at the end of their life. But if that's not what they want, then I take it upon myself to pray for them. I never give up on hoping that at the last minute they'll undergo a conversion, even if I may not be aware of it. So and even and when they already died, I make sure I keep them in mind when I'm attending Holy Mass so that I can pray for the eternal repose of their souls. So um, yeah, I don't think um, I was adversely affected by how my patients were, even if their value systems and preferences are so different from mine. Very good. And I know it's already five minutes to eight, and I know you have other activities for the night. Perhaps we can end with your advice. If you have three advice to everyone in terms of finding the meaning of both life and death. Well, especially as um, when I talk to young people who don't seem to know yet what they want from life, I always tell them that every day is a gift. They should have the same attitude of being amazed at what the, the gift might contain and enjoying it while it lasts because in the end, really nothing lasts forever. And so to have that attitude of gratitude, gratitude for your life, for your health, especially with the pandemic, when whenever somebody's celebrating a birthday and ask them, so what are you wishing for? And they would say, good health. And I would say, just like that, just health, nothing else. They would say, Doctora, and this time in, in, uh, in the history of humanity, health is so important because so many people have died from COVID and they've suffered from COVID. And that's really true, right? So that attitude of gratitude and then that attitude of trying to make a difference in your life, even if it's just um, nothing really major or, you know, uh, like it won't hit the news. But when you look back on your life, even if it's just a short life, you might say, did I somehow have made an impact on the people who are important to me? Have I made them happy in my own little way? Have I loved them the way they would have wanted to be loved? So, yeah, make the most of your life. So that's the second point. So that when death comes and then you say, okay, the end, it's been a good life history. All films have an ending and my own life has come to an end as well. And then the third is, aside from not never living for tomorrow, what you can do today is to realize that in as much as you and I will die, the people who are important to us will also die. And therefore, even if we may not be the sick person, it's, it's our family members, our friends who are suffering from an illness, make sure that there will be no regrets so that if and when they're finally taken away from us, we would say that I have tried my best to make that person happy. I've shown her how much I love her, how much she means to me. So that if, for example, the person suddenly met an accident, you saw her today and then later she's not there anymore. Then you might say, even if you're heartbroken at suddenly losing a person, you know that whatever little time you had with that person, all of that was meaningful. It was a real relationship where you invested your affection, your time, and you helped each other to become a better person. So life and death is not so scary as long as you have the right attitude of gratitude and wanting to make the best of it, even if it's the most ordinary life you can live. Okay, my friend, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Decisive Life. If you liked it, 
take a screenshot of this podcast, share it, and the link to this episode to three of your friends today. Post it in social media and use the hashtag, The Decisive Life. Until the next episode, my friend, be good.